Hello and welcome to Footnotes the Cicerone podcast, the podcast to inspire you about outdoor travel and activities in the UK and across the world. I'm Hannah and thanks for joining us for the latest episode. In this episode, I'm chatting to Jonathan, Leslie and Joe Williams about trekking in Europe. We'll talk about some of the best places to go, whether that's for a peaceful trek, a quick accessible weekend break or a bucket list trip to see some of the highlights of Europe's mountains. It's a huge topic to cover in one episode, so if you'd like any more information about any of the areas covered, please have a look at cicerone.co.uk where we have lots and lots of articles and books to help with your planning. So massive thanks to Bob and Mike for sending in these questions that prompted the podcast. Um, If there's anything in particular that you would like to hear us talk about or you want us to ask one of our experts, please do let us know. This is your podcast, so just get in touch and let us know what you'd like covering. Between Jonathan, Leslie and Joe, they have probably walked around most of Europe and have all either contributed to or written guidebooks to walks and treks in Europe. I'm going to start by asking Jonathan, MD and publisher at Cicerone, how long distance walking in the UK is different to long distance walking in Europe, because actually there are some really critical differences between the two. Hi Hannah, where to begin? I mean, let's start with the walking itself. In the UK, we have a footpath network and signed national trails. And that's usually true in Europe as well. Some of these things in Europe may be way more remote than they are in Britain. Often in Europe, it's mountain walking and high mountain walking rather than mid-mountain walking, which arguably is Scotland or the Lake District or something like that. And mountain walking brings its own set of issues as well for safety, for planning, for preparation and that sort of thing. But when you're getting into the mountains, of course, you have networks of mountain huts across Europe and they provide accommodation and and rest and respite, which we don't have in the UK. So, you know, that's probably one of the big differences there. In the UK, you may be camping, you may be bed and breakfasting or pubs or small hotels or something like that. In Europe, you may very well be between huts and jeets, which are a much more communal experience, I would say. That's probably a good start point. You know, we can make up a long list of other things like language. Helps if you speak the language. The administration of the whole thing. If you're in the UK, you basically will know how to administer it. And if you're going abroad, then you've got things to think about and further planning to do. And, you know, just how you do get through Paris from uh, Gare du Nord to Gare du Lyon. So easily in time to meet a half hour connection, that sort of thing. But I think that, you know, there's a lot that's the same between the two as well. The act of putting one foot in another, the act of journeying through a landscape, seeing the wildlife, the flowers. As ever with these things, it's the people that make the difference. And, you know, you can choose your country in Europe. You know, in Spain, you have a relaxed attitude, but Spanish mountain walkers are pretty serious about it. The French are very committed to walking in their excellent trail network of GR routes and in their mountains. And, you know, the Italian mountains are absolutely stunning. If it's your first time, you'll be staggered. The Swiss have got all their things to go at. Germany, Austria, we've walked in a little bit less. But there's a tradition of mountain walking over there, sometimes in groups, but sometimes not. That is deeply embedded, perhaps even more so than it, it is over here. So every country has its own flavor and its own food as well. You know, in Britain, we're pretty clear what we're likely to get in an evening and a bed and breakfast morning. If you're camping, you've probably bought it or carried it yourself. But the food in Italian huts is is, is well worth the trip. Gillian Price is an honorary Italian for her focus on the food in her guidebooks. 
you can tell a Gillian Price guidebook because she waxes lyrical about the mountains and then waxes lyrical about the food almost as much. Yeah, I can, I, I can get hungry on the last proofread. So on today's podcast, we are talking about trekking in Europe, um, but it's a big place. Where are the best hiking hotspots, Joe? Hi, Hannah. Yeah, you're right. It is a, it is a big place and there's um, there's a lot of diversity in the kind of walking that you can do in Europe. Maybe let's think about a, a little bit of a tour. So we could start um, start up in the north in uh, Scandinavia and we could think about using the Norwegian or Swedish huts. Uh, so we could do multi-day walking up, uh, in the Arctic. Pretty wild. Uh, lots of reindeer, that sort of thing. And then we could come down to Germany, go walking in the Black Forest uh, uh, this huge, huge area in uh, southwestern Germany, a bit lower kind of level, um, nice rolling mountains. And then, of course, we can't talk about walking in Europe without uh, thinking about the Alps. Um, but the Alps are made up of so many different areas and many, many different countries. It's not just that we think Alps equals France or Chamonix. We've got uh, the Dolomites or we've got the, the Jura um, in northern Switzerland or maybe over in the east in Slovenia with uh, the great mountains of the Julian Alps. Um, we can go all over the place. Then maybe we go to Spain for some Camino walking or the same in Portugal or some coastal walking in Portugal. It's funny, really, having a podcast about trekking in Europe because it's it's like a 20-minute podcast and there's so many, so many different things to talk about. It's quite hard to narrow it down. I mean... Uh, yeah, that, this is just sort of talking about mainland Spain, but then we can go to the islands and the Mediterranean. Um, so Mallorca, absolutely fantastic place to, to go walking, whether it's mountains that you're into or slightly lower level and coastal walks. There's loads of places, actually, that I would never have even considered to go to for a walking holiday until I worked for Cicerone. And I think in my head, I think, oh, Lanzarote, oh, that's like a, you know, a young young person's boozing holiday and then and then I'd get the copy of the book on my desk and I'd be thinking right what I forgot to say about Lanzarote and I'd look through the pictures and I think oh actually looks really nice if you just you know I mean maybe some people like that stuff but for me if I just avoided this little strip of the beach there and then there's loads of really amazing bits to explore um but again, you can take advantage of the really cheap flights and and stuff to get out there so it's a pretty good option. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. But yeah, not just those Canary Islands, but uh, they have the same issue. Think about Corfu. That's a it's a big par- party island, but uh, there's some brilliant stuff to do there. And Cyprus. Cyprus, yeah, uh, absolutely. And the various other big Greek islands, like Naxos, for example. The the walking there, there is really interesting, and you've got a lot of history uh, as well. Don't go in the summer; a bit too hot then. Well, actually, that's a good point, because within Europe, there are plenty of places that you can do skiing and snowshoeing and all of that type of winter stuff. But it's good that you mentioned snowshoeing, because um, I don't think I think we often think that the Alps, if you're maybe if you're not a skier, can be a bit out of bounds uh, in the winter. But um, uh, yeah, you could consider some snowshoeing in the Dolomites or uh, or something like that um, uh, as an alternative to, to a, a day walking uh, holiday. But actually, if you're looking for a warmer destination in the winter, places like the Canaries are really good for a a decent winter sunshine walking holiday as well. Every single one of the Canary Islands has got uh, a trekking route across it, multiple day walking routes. 
And we've now got a guidebook for trekking through all of the Canary Islands, haven't we? That's right. Yeah, the GR131. It takes most of a month to go um, hopping across all of the islands. But you've got an amazing diversity in there as well. The the, um, the hot and slightly flatter islands of Lanzarote um, and then through to the more mountainous ones like Gran Canaria. Yeah, I think that'd be a that'd be a pretty fun, fun hike to do. And the black sand volcanic landscapes are pretty cool in the Canaries. Yeah, 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 definitely. There's some really interesting sort of features there and some big mountains as well, um, over th- over 3,000 metres at the at the highest points. Um, yeah, there you go. It's a good, um, a good summary. Some of our bestsellers are trekking in Europe classics. You know, there's a couple of really, really famous routes that attract thousands of people. And it almost might come across as there are two or three treks in Europe. And once you've done those, Europe's done um, and you have to move on somewhere else. Um, loads of people have heard of Chamonix Zermatt and the Tour of Mont Blanc and the Dolomites. But there are also places that are much quieter and for some reason haven't attracted the limelight, which is often a good thing for walkers and trekkers. Um, can you give us an idea of some of those places, Joe? Yeah, well, let's um, let's not beat around the bush. Things like the Tour of Mont Blanc and the Hope Route are really, really good routes. Um, they're they're popular for a reason. I mean, the, the Tour of Mont Blanc, for those that don't know, it's a hundred miles. It takes ten to fourteen days to do. Goes through France, uh, Italy, and Switzerland, and you've always got amazing, amazing views. You can't say that it's actually the best route in Europe or the best trekking route in the Alps. It's very good, but there are dozens and dozens of other long distance trekking routes that can be just just as fantastic. So I might point people towards something like the Tour of Monte Rosa, another international country to country route that uh, that goes in um, around the highest mountain in Switzerland, going over very high passes, over 3000 meters at times. That's a that's a good one if you found the Tour of Mont Blanc or the Haute route uh, a bit a bit too easy. But then um, heading over to Eastern Switzerland and uh, Austria. There's the Silvretta and Retikon uh, mountain range, which is uh, I can guarantee you that if you're a if you're a British person looking to go and do some walking in the Alps, you will not find another British person uh, over there. You probably won't find anybody else um, walking in that area other than those people that are from Eastern Switzerland or Western Austria. It's a, a really, really gorgeous mountain range and very, very quiet. A bit more um, popular with French visitors would be the Vanois. Um, we've actually got a new uh, edition of the trekking um, in the Vanois guide that's going to be coming out later this year. And then um, in Corsica, uh, for example, the famous long distance trek there is the GR20. But you can uh, get away from the the very crowded uh, and busy huts on that tough route and try one of the alternative uh, treks from Corsica, the uh, Maria Mari Nord or South, the Mari Monte. So this is uh, sea to mountains or sea to sea or coast to coast, uh, as it would be. Uh, there, yeah, they're definitely a bit quieter. Um, but then maybe if we think about the about Caminos and the pilgrimage routes, there's uh, there's certainly some quieter ways of making your way to to. Santiago. Um, a few years ago, I walked the Camino Inglés, which is quite a short Camino. Um, it's only 120 kilometers, but um, provided you're not walking that in the middle of the summer, it's pretty quiet as well. I guess it depends what you want as well, though. Like I've never done a trek in Europe, and if I was going, I would want to make sure that there were loads of people around, so that if I wasn't sure where I was going, I could follow people or ask questions. I'd be 
grateful of the infrastructure being there. I'd be really happy with, you know, somewhere nice to stay and Wi-Fi and and these sorts of mod cons that you might not get on some of the quieter routes. So it's not to say that the really popular routes are bad or you should avoid them at all. Like you said, they're popular for really good reasons, but just that there is so much more to, like we were saying about Corfu and Cyprus and Lanzarote, there's more, there's more to them than you might necessarily realise. Yeah, that's right. And as you say, it depends on what you get out of your trekking holiday. But usually camaraderie and fellowship with other other trekkers who are going through the same hard work as it can be day after day, going up and over mountains or walking 20 or 30 kilometres along flatter, flatter terrain. You you know you share things with your fellow trekkers, and that's 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 usually a very meaningful part of the experience, whether it's a popular route or a, a quieter one. Brilliant. So I just spend a, a few minutes talking about huts. Across Europe, there is a, a very substantial hut network. Many of these are run by alpine clubs and similar organisations in in each country. You know, in France, for example, it was the uh, the CAF, the Club Alpine Francaise, which has recently renamed itself. They run a substantial network of huts, most of which are, are in the mountains. Similarly, in Switzerland, the Club Alpine Suisse and Italian, the CAI. And the, the granddaddy of all these organizations is the combination of the, the Osterreicher Alpinesverein and the Deutsche Alpinesverein, the Austrian and German Alpine Clubs, which used to be one organization and still have a lot in common in how they do things. So the hut is generally in a nice calm spot on the mountain, usually tucked out of the way of the worst weather. You often have spectacular views from there and time to enjoy them. You know, sunset on the rocky limestone above you in the Dachstein is one that particularly springs to mind. Just as well, we were past the age of film cameras by then, otherwise I'd have bankrupted myself. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Sleeping accommodation varies radically. Old style, you know, you'd be in a dormitory and, you know, with, with a number of other people, often on a sort of sleeping rack with mattresses side by side. So there may be, you know, two rows of 10 people or something like that. And then you have to go back to your, uh, you know, camping out days and deal with sleeping with other people. And for, for those who haven't done it for a while, it take, can take a little bit of getting the hang of. In those situations, I guess some people sleep well there. I, I sure do. But you have three bones of conflict, really. You have snorers. You have people who want to sleep with the window shut. You can rustle things late at night when you want to be asleep. But usually, usually it's fine. Everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody's sensitive to everybody else. And, and, and it works pretty well. But increasingly across Europe, you know, in, in France, Switzerland, uh, are increasingly getting broken up. COVID is an accelerator in this because having a lot of people in a dorm is not the greatest thing. So smaller dorms with smaller groups are a, are a safer bet. And I, I think they're what people by and large want to stay in anyway, if there's a choice. Some huts do have rooms for two, but it's not that common. Austria, you can very often get a room for two or four. Lights out tends to be at 10 o'clock if you last that long. And um, most people are up early and sharpish in the morning for a bit of breakfast and then getting back on the trail. But as ever with these things, it's, you know, it's the people you meet around the table and, uh, and, and get to know. I mean, you, know, you can have lifelong friendships from people you met in mountain huts. Austrian and German huts are almost better described as mountain hotels and have you know, set menus with choices and, and this sort of thing uh, and are outstanding. 
in the eastern huts you know, you tend to have your own table in france switzerland italy you may very well be a communal table and served a set meal the meal is almost certainly three or four courses and it's you know good good nutritious food down in slovenia in the julian alps they have their own particular diet there it's a little bit simpler but it's amazing how far you can go on barley soup Switzerland is is a little bit, you know, betwixt. There's elements of French, there's elements of German, and there's some purely Swiss things. Uh, France, you tend to go with the flow. The menus are often set, but they're always edible. Spain, super, really, you know. Getting dinner in Spain, now, now there's a thing. You're a trekker, you want to be off at seven in the morning, say. So do you want to be eating dinner at Spanish dinner time? No, because Spanish restaurants start serving sometime after nine and go on quite late. How do you cope with this? I mean, one of the approaches that we've had success with is in a tapas bar, you get small samples of tapas meals, but there are larger helpings called raciones. A couple of plates of raciones amount to a great meal. And the wine, of course. There's quite a few calories in the wine. And the beer. You don't want to go running out of potassium on one of these treks. Absolutely not. So just for a soundbite for the podcast, are you saying that wine is a good recovery drink? I mean, I wouldn't have said I was a big drinker on the trail, but, you know, a beer before a meal and a, and a glass of wine with it does seem to fit the bill for me pretty well. Some people wouldn't want that. If you're in a hut, you know, the extras can be one of the things that mounts up. So you may want to just be a little bit more restrained. Uh, you know, in, in Spain, it's more likely that the, the wine comes with the meal anyway. So enjoy. We're offering podcast listeners 25% off any of our 162 guidebooks to Europe. Just go to cicerone.co.uk forward slash Europe, choose your books and enter the code EPOD25 at the checkout. That's EPOD25. I hope you enjoy choosing and planning your next trip. It's interesting, actually, when you said about the the hut should maybe be called mountain hotels, because I think the word hut does make it sound a little bit basic. And I've never stayed in a mountain hut. And I think my picture of what a mountain hut is, is probably quite rudimentary. And actually, you know, you're getting a multiple course meal and wine and, you know, company. And it, it doesn't sound rudimentary at all. It sounds like it's one of the highlights of, of the experience. Yeah, uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, one of the reasons. I, I was more especially talking about the uh, the German and Austrian ones there, which have developed most in that direction. And when you get into very high huts, you know, then the supply difficulties and construction difficulties do tend to take you towards a more rudimentary sort of thing. And we have got a whole book. that It's not a guidebook per se, but it's more an ode to the mountain hut by Kev Reynolds. And that's full of his experiences of staying in huts over the years. And they've been so memorable for him that he was compelled to create a whole book about it. That's an, an indicator of how important they can be, but also somewhere that people can go and find out a little bit more about mountain huts, should they wish. Kev's book covers, you know, it's full of tips and hints and ways of fitting in and, and going along with the flow and making it work well for you and ideas of where to go and, and that sort of thing. And yes, he'll talk about the differences between the huts in the various countries across Europe. Great book. And do you always try and learn a, a few words of the language? when you're going trekking in Europe? Yes, yes. Enough to be polite, but uh, not enough to be impolite, I would say. 
I've got a, reason, a reasonable amount of French and some Spanish, some Italian, some German. So, yeah, just get stuck in pretty soon. You know, if you're making an effort, people will appreciate it. And it's certainly very helpful to be able to order your own beer and food and make basic arrangements and to read a train timetable and these sort of things. We've talked about the differences for long distance walking between Europe and the UK from a UK walker's perspective. What would you say to people who are used to trekking in Europe um, about the differences from coming over to the UK to do a long distance walk? So this is a European coming to England from Europe who's coming into Britain for the first time to experience it. Yeah, and if they if they imagined that the UK experience would be like doing the Tour of Mont Blanc, what would be different? Well, in terms of the trails, the, the trails are good. The British landscape is just incredibly varied. So, for example, if you were to take the coast to coast, you start off on the Cumbrian coast and then go through the Lake District Mountains. You get a limestone stretch through past uh, Schaff and Kirby Stephen before getting through into the higher Pennines there and then coming down the other side of the Vale of York. And then just when you think you're getting there, you get the North York Moors, which are as, as tough as anything. You've been through five or six different forms of landscape over that period. Now, perhaps that's uh, a little bit more than anywhere else. And if you took the West Highland Way, you've got an in essence valley route lowland route through the foothills and then the high mountains of western scotland you know the cotswold way would have its own charms but those cotswolds are steep there's a highly varied experience and plenty of interesting things to do but you know again you probably do come back to the accommodation if you're carrying a tent then are there campsites at every location and that sort of thing other than that, you're probably organising your own hostel or bed and breakfast accommodation on the way through. I think accommodation is much harder to organise in Britain than it is in Europe. Going around Mont Blanc, there's a company, the, the Autour de Mont Blanc website, where you sort out, basically sort out your accommodation all the way through in a, in a single go. That really doesn't happen in the UK. Hence, what we do have in the UK, and you know, they also exist in Europe, is companies that help organise it for you, either carrying your baggage or if you're self-guided, they can sort out the bookings for you. If you're fully guided, you could even get somebody to take you, as you can in Europe. But how you organise your accommodation, if you want to do it yourself, it requires a little bit more thought in the UK, I would say. But also it's fun in that you can poke around and pick and choose a little bit and the choices are wider because if you're coming to stay in a, a small town or a village or whatever, there may be two bed and breakfast options and um, rooms at a pub, for example. And if you're organising it yourself, you've got the, the choices quite possibly unless it's all fully booked, in which case it then starts getting a bit more interesting. <laughs> and if you've got a dog, then that adds a whole different dimension because you can only book certain places that will accept dogs as well. So, yeah. But potentially less sociable as well. Um, sometimes. It depends on the size of the B&B, for example, though, because if it's a if it's a fair size B&B, you may have three or four other rooms in that accommodation and you'll probably all sit down for breakfast at the same time. The key thing is to get stuck in, get up there and enjoy it. A long distance walk or a trek is a journey through a landscape. And that's quite different from going on a, 
a series of day walks when you're at a single base, you see much more. You know, your daily distance may be much the same, but when you're not walking around that circle on a map, it goes through landscape and you get to see more. You have the sense of journey and yeah, strongly recommended. We hope you enjoyed the latest episode of Footnotes, the Cicerone podcast. We'd love to know what you think or if there's anything you'd like us to cover in future episodes. Please email live at cicerone.co.uk or leave a review on your podcast platform. You can follow or subscribe to the podcast to make sure you don't miss new episodes or you can sign up to our newsletter for all our latest news, events and guidebooks. Visit cicerone.co.uk for further details. We'll be back soon, but please come and join us on our social channels. We're on all the main ones at Cicerone Press and we also have a Facebook group, Cicerone Connect, where you can meet and chat to other outdoor enthusiasts. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you soon.